and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. If you are an avid listener, you might remember a podcast we did about a year ago that introduced the concept of athlete biometrics and the concept of public versus private data collected from various athletic performance software and clothing. Today, we'll take that discussion one step further and look more deeply into the issues surrounding it. My guest today is Christy Gale, President and CEO of Honor Data Rights Management, the Principal and Consultant for Sports Data Strategies, and Director of the Institute for Biometric Data Optimization and Protection. She has spent the better part of the last decade of her life immersed in data rights and privacy, and she brings an awful lot to our conversation today. This conversation is particularly relevant to presidents and senior campus leaders because campuses collect a lot of data on their students. In athletics, that data is sometimes sold to emerging companies who are anxious to get a piece of the names, image, and likenesses world, as well as to improve their products. Christy, welcome to the podcast, and just remind our audience, briefly explain what biometric data is and why college and university leaders should be worried about what happens to it. Sure, absolutely, and, and, and thanks for um, focusing on the importance of this topic. Um, so biometric data, um, typically from a legal perspective, we are defining that as, uh, we're defining athlete biometric data as a measurable and distinguishable physical characteristic or behavioral characteristic that's used um, to specify an individual, um, a, a specific individual. And that, that can include a person's name, image, and likeness, as well as their signatures, pictures, activities, voice, data, and other information that identifies a particular athlete. Um, and we know name, image, and likeness can include jerseys, jersey number, you know, anything that can align um, a specific individual with a specific uh, position in sport. Um, the reason biometric data is important to college and university leaders um, is because there are a lot of privacy and property laws um, around the use and the collection use and dissemination of this data. Um, but there's also a lot of ambiguity because the use of athlete biometric data is fairly new and we'll, we'll discuss that, um, but it's fairly new. And so the existing legal framework is frankly inadequate and can increase exposure and risk. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. It's a really important topic to think about. So let's start with something that many folks who follow college sports and professional sports of a company called the WHOOP band, W-H-O-O-P band, which is being heavily used by both pros and colleges. It really came to fruition last summer when we saw the NBA bubble. So tell us how the WHOOP band works, what data is collected, and who has access to it. Right, absolutely. Thank you. So um, WHOOP is a wristband, as you mentioned, and it's used um, primarily to measure load, what, what we've typically called load data. Um, but what that is, is um, it, it's going to show recovery, data that shows recovery, that shows performance and sleep um, data. That's typically what they focus on. And um, they show heart rate, for example, um, athlete movement, respiratory rate, um, sleep quality, anything um, from 
speed, just body mechanics to some extent, uh, what we're putting in our bodies, whether that's caffeine, tobacco, or other things that can affect performance. So the wood band tracks quite a bit. One of the things that you and I discovered last week is the whoop band is getting into the clothing business. Let's talk a little bit about what that might mean. Yeah, so in their press release and this um, article that you're referring to specifically from Front Office Sports, um, it mentions that the company is getting into wearables and that includes um, sports bras, shorts, um, and other sensor tech fabrics. And sensor tech fabrics have been around for several years and they've been evolving. There have been several startup companies from different countries around the world that utilize sensors that are embedded in fabric and especially stretch fabrics used for athletic activity um, and of course fabric that's washable. Um, and so of course the data points that you can collect with that many more sensors on the body arguably is going to be much more and much more in depth. Um, and I thought an interesting point that what made was that it's um, something that it, apparently they've developed in-house. It doesn't look like they're licensing that technology from existing um, sensor tech apparel companies. Um, and so perhaps they're, they're creating it internally. So that will be, you know, that'll be interesting. Um, Whoop has become a leader, and I hope you, you don't mind if I take a moment here but to talk about them, but um, they've been around for several years, and initially, when they were in the startup space, um, they're still fundraising, still growing, but when they really were a startup, their founder, um, Will Ahmed, um, was looking at partnering with different sports organizations, and he looked at the NBA, and um, pre-Whoop, there was an, another wearable called Jawbone, that, was, that works similarly. It was on, affixed to the wrist and it tracks sleep and other metrics. And um, so WHOOP has worked steadily with athletes and athletic organizations to improve their product, doing studies, um, improving collection of the data and verification of the data and ensuring that the data is telling the story that they think it is, which becomes important uh, when we talk later about student athletes that are being tracked and whether or not the data is even accurate and how data collection parties are verifying whether the data they're collecting is accurate. Um, and so in the history of WHOOP and in wearable tech or sensor tech, generally what we have seen is from about 2012 through 2015, 2016, is a lot of activity in the market where there are wearable tech companies um, promising um, predictive analytics um, to help athletes improve their performance, et cetera. And so there was kind of a shakeout where sports scientists working for professional sports teams wanted um, these companies to prove that the data was verifiable, that it was telling the story that they, they um, said it was. And so with Whoop, it seems that they've been successful at that. And of course, a couple of years ago, a little bit longer than that, they partnered with the NFLPA's One Team um, Collective and partnered with the NFLPA to um, provide this wearable, provide data for the athletes, and then um, partner with uh, the NFLPA in marketing and endorsement um, opportunities. And now, of course, as this latest article mentions, that they are growing in valuation and receiving more investment. And now they're engaging athletes, top um, elite athletes, such as Patrick Mahomes, and sharing very high-level um, 
snapshot of his athlete biometric data because they anticipate fans will want that information and see where they fall um, or how they compare to Patrick Mahomes and other elite athletes. And that's exactly what was anticipated in this market, that this data that was initially collected to help athletes perform better um, would be monetized and commoditized and used in the market as another way to make money. So yeah. Whoop, Whoop is kind of leading the charge along with Catapult, um, Zephyr, Zebra, and some others. You know, that's fascinating. And Patrick Mahomes uh, strikes me as an athlete is sort of out there on the cutting edge of things. But we know that NFL players have collective bargaining uh, agreements, unlike college uh, student athletes do. So the first question I want to ask you is, who has access to all this data? Does Patrick, does the company, does the team, does the league, those kinds of things? That's a great question, and every everyone's a little bit different, and you mentioned collective bargaining agreements in pro sports. Um, each of the five pro sports in the U.S., the NFL, NBA, MLB, um, NHL, and MLS, um, you know, they have collective bargaining agreements, and they vary in how they address athlete biometric data and its use, and in some ways, they um, uh, identify that there is this data, that it should be treated a certain way. Um, only the MLB has said it cannot be used in contract negotiations, which of course could disadvantage athletes. Um, so with college athletes, as you mentioned, the risk is greater for them. And uh, the, the people who have access to this data is definitely the athletes. They, they'll see the, the data that's collected from them. Um, the coaching staff, that is collecting the data will have access to it. And um, so certainly the team will have access to the data because the original um, benefit of using the data in addition to helping athletes perform better and reduce injury and find optimum load where they're not overloaded or underloaded while they're performing or playing um, was in addition to that, they want the team gameplay to improve. And so they need to understand how each athlete is performing at different times during the game. And of course, there are purists that say, um, we don't need data, we can just observe with the naked eye. There are others with the whole, you know, in the whole money ball camp, which is most people at this point, that the more data, the better, you know, we can rely on the data. And there are some that think that there's a healthy mix or healthy balance using both um, what we observe with our eye and kind of like the instinct of what we know about human psychology and performance. Um, and also utilizing data to help tell the story or show the nuances um, in data and athlete performance. So certainly teams want that, that data for each of their athletes and they want to utilize it to improve how that team plays together. Um, and so, you know, back in the day, and we might want to talk about this more later, I guess. So I don't want to jump ahead, but 2012-2013, when this uh, when pro sports teams were really starting to utilize wearable tech and sensor tech, um, they, they I, I'll use the example of the Dallas Mavericks, um, the coaching staff um, was utilizing this data from the athletes and a couple of the athletes mentioned that they were concerned about who would have access to the data. This happened on other sports teams as well, specifically in the NBA in this example. Um, and the Mavericks players were assured that only the coaching staff would have access to the data. And that may as well very been the may, may very well have been the case at that point. Um, but even then, 
um, it was known that data could be utilized for next-gen stats, which the NFL was already beginning to do and incorporate into broadcasts, and their next-gen stats were based on zebra technology or RFID um, tags. They're basically little radio transmitters that were embedded in um, shoulder pads for football players. That technology was used uh, previous to that to track packages um, in the mail system as they were shipped across the country, et cetera. Um, and so that data was already being used and, and starting to be slated for use to improve fan engagement in broadcast, in um, uh, video games, uh, fantasy sports, et cetera. And I'm sure you've, you're familiar with the uh, discussion over the past three to four, I guess mostly three years um, since the uh, potential legalization of sports betting in the U.S. and the use of this data for sports betting. So at this point, the data is generally known and made available to the athletes, the training staff, coaches, and um, teams, but certainly it's also made available to the leagues and their data collection and dissemination partners. Um, in college sports specifically, there are deals with Adidas, Nike, Under Armour, um, and Catapult um, that, to some extent, allow collection of athlete data. Um, so that's kind of where that stands right now. And the in college sports, who has access has been somewhat ambiguous, and the type of data that's made available has been ambiguous, and that should be a red flag for administrators. Because it increases risk. I'm so glad you, you walked us through that because it makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you this. In an, in an athletics department that does not have a collective bargaining agreement with their athletes, as all college athletics does, how could this data be misused? Could you walk us through that? I would love to. You know, it's a great point. So what we've seen so far is data can be misused in a number of ways. There's not just privacy issues involved. As I mentioned, there are property rights, which is typically going to be those publicity rights, which are now popularly known as NIL. Um, there's that, but then there's also a potential trade secret. And the way that applies is, I think you'll probably remember in pro sports and major league baseball, there was um, a data breach a few years ago with the Houston Astros and um, in that case, the court found that trade secrets, trade secrets were essentially leaked. And um, that was when player information was um, shared with another team in an unauthorized manner. Essentially, a former athlete hacked into the um, system using his old password. And um, he ended up in prison and the teams were fined and penalized. So... Um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of risk associated with this, and that's on top of normal security breaches, which everyone these days is familiar with, um, data breaches that could happen. And so the other thing to consider in college sports is so you have the potential um, for privacy rights, exposure, um, and, and violated privacy rights. And you could be dealing with minors that are under the age of 18. Um, in the U.S., the privacy rights are not as robust as in Europe and other places. Um, California, of course, um, 
with their Consumer Privacy Protection Act um, has more privacy protections than other states in the U.S. Um, and then there are some biometric data statutes um, that protect biometric data specifically in a few states. Um, Illinois was the first, and then there's Washington, Texas, a couple others, and I know other states have tried to introduce biometric data privacy legislation. Um, but there are big data players that everyone is familiar with their corporate names um, that lobby for increased access to consumer data to improve their products or make our lives better um, is according to them. And so I don't know how much growth there will be in privacy legislation and especially biometric data privacy legislation and um, genetic data privacy, because there is a federal act protecting um, genetic data and protecting consumers and employees um, with regard to the use of their genetic data. Um, but something to be aware of is that the U.S. and each state generally has less privacy protection um, than other areas, but that also means there could be more ambiguity and you have to consider data collection across state lines if you're um, collecting data. You're, you know, your school is based in one state and you're going to another state to play. Um, to some extent, you want to be aware of if you're playing in Illinois, there are biometric data collection laws. Um, so, so there's a privacy issue that creates risk for students. Um, there's also HIPAA. And again, at this point, student athletes are not considered employees. And to some extent, HIPAA is based on that employee and employer rela um, relationship. Um, however, in pro sports, it was um, addressed when HIPAA was enacted. Um, and it was found that athletes don't necessarily leave their HIPAA rights at the door just by virtue of deciding to play sports. And so you can't just, you know, HIPAA, there's some ambiguity around that. I don't know that we have time to address that during this conversation, um, but HIPAA is another important privacy um, uh, bill or, I'm sorry, um, law that people need to consider um, how this all plays out. And I know individual university athletic departments are considering all of these things. Um, the other things to, to think about is the property rights. So NIL data as a subset of NIL, um, data that an athlete builds the brand in or builds the value in, and um, that data can only become available through the athlete and the athlete improving his or her performance. Um, and so they have the right to generate revenue from that data and their name, image, and likeness. They have the ability to control who can use and monetize um, that data. And so that will only grow going forward. And right now it's a little bit wild west. There's a lot of ambiguity. There are a lot of people out there saying that they know how to help athletes um, monetize NIL or license their NIL. They do, but they may not um, consider this, this part of the equation, which is the impact data has on the athlete's career in the short and long term. And so, of course, that opens up the risk to the athletes, whether you're, you as, an, you as a university or an athletic department are truly obtaining adequate consent 
that's required by privacy laws at this point um, and uh, property laws, essentially getting the license to utilize that data, especially in the wake of um, the recent Supreme Court decision allowing um, student athletes or amateur athletes to monetize their NIL. The risk to athletes, of course, is um, it may, if they allow collection of their data, it may be beneficial to them if you're a Patrick Mahomes. Um, if you're another player where it might um, disclose that you have a genetic predisposition for some type of disease, it could close the door on your professional career opportunity. Um, if you are a baseball player and you've had Tommy John surgery and um, the MLB is not already aware of that, um, through records you've provided, um, your performance data may indicate that, and it could either result in a less lucrative contract um, to play professionally, or even if you're in college or high school sports, your data may indicate that you should have, you may, you may get uh, less gameplay time. You, you'd be put into the game less based on what your data says, regardless of what your performance numbers show or how you feel. Um, so, and there could be potential dystopian uses of the data, um, uses without your consent, or um, because it is such sensitive data, Whoop says it can reveal how much caffeine um, or tobacco is in your system. So, of course, it can show PEDs, it can show legal and illegal drugs, sexual activity, um, many other things that I think people would generally agree in society that should be kept private. Um, but the risk, the athlete is assuming the risk of, this, of what that data is, is saying about him or her, and are they being compensated for it? And so I think athletes, or I'm sorry, universities need to be aware of the risks that they could be taking on by monitoring um, their athletes to this extent. They need to consider um, the risks that athletes are taking and make sure that they're obtaining adequate consent from the athlete, that they can demonstrate that. And I'll talk more about that later, um, what that could look like. Um, they need to be aware that, um, as I mentioned, data breaches, whoever the universities are partnering with in the collection and dissemination and storage of that data um, is secure and that their agreements contain adequate um, terms um, for representations and warranties and indemnifications and allocation of liability in case there's some type of data breach. Um, so there is definitely a lot to consider here. Christy, you, you are, have identified so many important topics. Let's start with something that's really granular on the ground. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things I take issue is, is this. Many coaches will order tech equipment to motivate and track their athletes. Anecdotally, I suspect that coaches aren't asking the questions about data collection that you just talked about. Even more concerning is, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think many athletes know that they may have a choice as to whether they wear the equipment or not if they do object. Walk us through the state of play with regards to the dynamic of coaches wanting to use tech to improve performance and motivate players, but the players having the right to say no and not be penalized. Okay, yeah, that's a great question. So you had mentioned uh, an, an app in you know, specifically Spotter EDU, and there are a couple of others out there. 
but these are utilized to track where students are, and specifically student athletes, um, where they are, if they're attending class, making sure um, basically it's a university to some extent protecting its investment, right, to make sure that the athletes are eligible to play. And of course, the companies providing this technology laud the benefits, which are you're going to know where your student athletes are all the time. You're going to be able to check the box that they're getting to class, they're in the right place at the right time, not getting in trouble, and um, that they're going to perform well on the field or the court, et cetera, for you. And so some professors and education advocates say that these systems are low intrusive um, technology that could breach student privacy on a massive scale. Um, and others, of course, are for it because they're thinking we have fuller classrooms now, we are, attendance is up, um, students are more engaged and, uh, you know, the positives, the benefits of we're, maybe we'll have more students graduating with degrees, et cetera. Um, and so, again, what we've had is this kind of, a, I'll liken it to a frog in a pot, which most people have heard, um, the frog in the frying pan, that if you start with low heat, the frog's not going to know he's fried until it's happened. And so it is with data privacy that as our data rights are increasingly eroded and there's more gray area in, in our privacy rights and we consent to more things for what appear to be beneficial reasons, um, we may be disregarding and ignoring to some extent the risks associated with sharing that information. And we may not be stopping to ask ourselves, is this really what we want as a society and is this really truly in the best interest um, some people have mentioned specific to this issue is at this point in life with student athletes, this is exactly the time of life you're trying to teach more responsibility, greater independence, greater personal accountability, and making good decisions rather than handholding and helicopter parenting, for lack of a better term. Um, and do we really need to babysit these students? Will they then turn into adults that can manage themselves, that are self, you know, can have developed self-control, um, or are they just afraid? of whatever the coaching staff or their device could be telling them. Um, specific to spotter EDU, some students have mentioned, uh, and I, we can have this conversation about how athletes feel about being monitored. I think we need to have that conversation here. But um, specific to spotter EDU, some students say, fine, it's not a big deal, I'm going to class anyway. I'm used to sharing data. Um, I'm used to social media and putting private information out there. Um, but some are saying, I, I don't even think the app is working properly. And so it marks me tardy or absent when I'm not tardy or absent. So I'm more focused on pushing all the right buttons so that one, I'm not marked tardy or absent. And two, so that I'm not getting um, a conversation with someone on the coaching staff saying, why weren't you in class when I was? And they're more panicked about making the technology work correctly than actually getting to class and learning. Um, some feel it's invasive. And to our prior um, note of the risk involved, an earlier version, version of Spotter EDU um, uh, tracked student location and activity after class hours. So at night, what were they doing at night and where were they? That's much more intrusive and outside the scope of the consent that I'm sure the university intended to give and certainly the athletes or students intended to give. So scope is another really important topic that just because an, a university have, has an agreement with a company to collect, store, disseminate, 
data um, doesn't necessarily mean all data. And that needs to be clearly specified in a contract. And there needs to be people there in within the athletic department and maybe outside the athletic department who is solely focused on data security and data privacy and the scope of data use, the consent received from the athletes. Um, this is, I, I've known for years, this will certainly create a lot more jobs and job opportunities um, because of where this is all going. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, what I mentioned about athlete, um, how athletes feel about collection. Is right now ahead. a good time for that? Go right ahead. Okay. So as we've seen in the evolution of wearable technology and data, it was first used in 2009, um, started being used in Europe, and then in the U.S., I would say around 2012-ish, um, where it was used in NBA. I mentioned Jawbone, which was a wrist um, data collector, not unlike Whoop or Fitbit or Apple Watch. And at that point, it was utilized by some NBA teams, and they found that if their players got more rest, um, based on the data revealed by Jawbone, that they would perform better. And so they started tracking athletes. And in the NBA at that time, athletes were kind of concerned about, okay, what data are they collecting and what are they using it for? Um, some athletes were happy because it allowed them to perform better and they wanted to be in top shape and be, you know, be, be marketable and valuable in the league and have the best pay, obviously high salaries. Um, others were concerned about sharing so much that they did not want, um, uh, you know, private inf health information that they did not want disclosed. Some were concerned about where that data was going. Some were concerned about one day will they just feed us all the same thing and prescribe the same sleep regimen and the same training regimen for all of us and we're basically machines and we take a pill and go to sleep all at the same time and wake up at the same time. Um, you know, that kind of um, uh, science fiction narrative that could be concerning. Um, and, and pro athletes, and now probably increasingly uh, college athletes or amateur athletes because of this um, Supreme Court decision and individual state NIL statutes um, that have been enacted, there's a rub against the First Amendment speech restrictions. And typically in pro sports, um, health information or other information about athletes is considered speech that is not protected, meaning it can be disclosed publicly because it is news or information that people find interesting and also because it's about public figures and has some entertainment value to us. And so under the First Amendment speech um, laws, um, we as consumers and the public by law have more access to private health information and private information about these athletes. And if I were those athletes, I would be concerned about that. And so the NFLPA, for example, has done a good job educating their athletes when they come into the league about understand what data you're sharing and what that could mean in, you know, on now for your career and later and think long-term, um, what do I share and what will its impact be on me? And this is something that's so important in amateur sports, uh, frankly, at this point, from youth sports to high school to college, because that whole way now we have data trackers and parents may not know 
where that data is going and the true impact it could have on their children and potential careers. So this all goes back to consent, right? And and the NFLPA found in the last couple ish, couple three years that um, there's definitely a dividing line uh, generationally. Athletes that have not been used to having their data collected during gameplay or practice uh, typically want to keep that data more private. Um, also, those are the, the athletes that may be near retirement, so they don't feel as pressured to share the data or consent to its use because they know they won't be in the league that long anyhow, or they are such a star player that they may not necessarily have to give up as much data privacy. They might have more control over that. Um, and then younger athletes are used to tracking and monitoring their performance. Even if it's not with a wearable tech um, device, they're just used to having more information known about them and sharing that information on social media platforms. And especially when you have Influencer and um, Opendoors and others now in this NIL space saying monetize your brand and produce content, a natural way for athletes to produce content is to share this type of performance information. And that's been done for the last few years, for example, on Facebook Live by Serena Williams um, and other athletes, an interrupted platform that LeBron James and Nav Carter have produced um, that allows athletes to control their narrative. And now, of course, student athletes can do that. And so the level of consent and each athlete's ability to opt in and opt out is really important. And when it comes back to, and I'm circling back now to Spotter EDU and these other um, technologies that are used on campus, um, one of the, the big challenges is making sure you have a robust way for student athletes to opt in and opt out and that they don't feel that their ability to play is contingent on their opting in. Um, and, and we can talk more about that later. I know you have a question about that and what administrators can do. Um, but definitely the biggest concerns are informing the athletes, communicating, making sure the contracts with these service providers are robust enough to um, and, and, um, anticipate these potential risks for the universities, the teams, um, and the athletes. And so some of the things specifically with Spotter EDU um, that, that has been observed on campus is the tracking systems, as you mentioned, being installed in classrooms and tracking students' whereabouts throughout the day. Um, there's concern that it could um, cause the students either to go backwards in their development um, or um, I guess a broader concern is that these companies want to collect not just geolocation data, but kind of the status of a student, their thoughts, their behaviors. We want to, they want to be able to um, identify when a student might be very depressed or not performing as well. They might have an eating disorder. They might be avoiding a cafeteria. And so there's a, an assumption that they are suffering from food insecurity or an eating disorder. And we should investigate that because we care. And that's a slippery slope. And we haven't even talked about bioethics, but there are certainly bioethics um, professors and programs throughout the US um, that can talk about where do we draw the line? When are we being helpful? When are we being invasive? When does a student or a human 
um, ability to manage what they want to share and what they don't want to share, where, where is that line? Because it's no longer a bright line and we can want to do good, um, but are we doing good? Those bioethical questions have not been addressed or answered adequately at this point because this is a new phase in humanity and society. Um, so that's, you know, those are some of the top concerns. That's, that's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's uh, in, incredibly important that, that institutions sit down and talk about this. If you had one parting piece of advice for a senior campus leader or president on this topic, what would it be? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So the, the top things that administrators need to be aware of is first of all, the collection, use and dissemination of the data. They need to understand what, whether it's the athletic department or any department, what agreements are in place or being considered, what tech partners are being considered to collect and use the data and ask serious questions, develop a good checklist, a robust checklist of what type of data may be collected for what purpose, and when, because as we've seen, the data that, that could be collected to help an athlete uh, perform better could be used later to it for sports betting and made public to everyone. So what are the categories of the um, data life cycle? What are the risks and impacts on all of the parties? Um, and just one note here, that's what you had mentioned, the different organizations that I am involved with. And, and that's precisely why I'm involved with these different organizations, one organization, um, provides a platform, a tech platform to manage data rights um, to ensure that compliance is happening while doing business in real time is happening so that we're de-risking this to some extent and ensuring that um, all of the participants in this new sports data ecosystem, that their rights are being represented and protected and that there is an auditable record of that so that as more claims, legal claims, litigation, et cetera, happen because we have to be aware that there could be class action litigation. We, we just have to be aware of that, right? And how do we protect against that? So there needs to be a mechanism, a technological platform that's secure um, that can track all of this. So that's one endeavor. The other is consulting on these matters um, for people, especially where these issues are just now um, becoming a, um, apparent to people. Again, as you mentioned, it's something I've been already focused on for several years and working in this space for several years, um, but it's considered new to most people. And um, the third thing is this um, Institute for Biometric Data Optimization and Protection allows all of these um, participants in the sports data ecosystem to have a seat at the table and talk about the risks and the things that are important to them um, some scholars in this space have recently, in 2019, identified uh, the risk is that many, in many cases with these types of technologies that are adopted, no one has talked with the athletes, the student athletes, about what is acceptable to them or what are they giving up or what's expected of them. And that's a huge blind spot. So as part of this list, this checklist um, that the universities can develop for their tech partners to ask these questions, engage the athletes and find out where the athletes are on these issues and what's important to them. Um, the other thing is that universities need to be able to think, they need to think about the reputational risk, right? So if there's any type of data breach or any type of bad PR or any of this goes south, <laughs> it immediately creates reputational risk. 
and they need to think about that and have a plan for how they're going to deal with that. That's on top of what is the legal risk and the um, bioethical risk of just what does it take to be wise in this situation and when we're contracting with these um, partners, these data partners, what should our agreements look like to ensure we're protecting ourselves, our coaching staff and our students and our university um, from liability. Uh, and that's a huge, that we could probably have two or three podcasts just to talk about all of that. Um, but ask, ask these questions, <laughs> we probably should, but we can ask these questions, right, to try to de-risk and, and I know universities have teams of lawyers to help them do this. Um, and think about not just the contractual obligations, but potential tort claims, um, tort-like claims where an athlete might sue the university saying, "I," which is happening in the UK, not universities, but there's Project Red Card where athletes, a group of athletes are putting together class, class action lawsuits against Premier League um, soccer because data was collected for one purpose and then it was shared um, for an unauthorized purpose. So right. it's kind of right. against against that risk. And then finally, making sure that they have formalized opt-in agreements um, for those athletes who are participating in sports and utilizing these technologies and making sure that they're regulating these programs to make sure the athletes aren't pressured into participating and making sure the consent um, satisfies legal requirements. Um, and then making sure they're having conversations with the athletes directly um, about making sure there's not abuse of the use of this data or exploitation. Uh, I know everyone's concerned about sports betting in college athletics and college athletes that are not making money. Um, that's a real, uh, when it comes to sports wagering integrity, that's a weak spot um, because it's usually athletes that aren't making much money that are approached by those who want them to throw the game. Um, and it's not a conversation of throw the game. It's going to be in a non-obvious way, just don't do your best right. and we'll pay right. you some money. And that's a whole other huge risk um, that can't, you know, these we can't have these blind spots. And so administrators need to be aware of, of that and, and where this could go with sports wagering um, and even fantasy sports. Since yeah. these, there are, there's already lawsuits out there where um, student athlete data or information was utilized uh, by FanDuel, DraftKings, et cetera, um, without athletes, you know, without explicit consent. And that lawsuit was decided in favor of FanDuel and DraftKings, but that won't, I, I really think that that law will become more nuanced and overturned over time. And I know the um, pro sports um, leagues anticipate that as well because they opined or weighed in through Amakai briefs uh, in that lawsuit. So this is all, this, it'll take the next few years to evolve, but there are a lot of risks that can be de-risked um, if administrators stay informed. Christy, you're amazing. I so appreciate your the conversation, um, the depth of information that you've provided on this podcast. I'm going to have to have you back so we can talk more <laughs> about this. But Christy Gale, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Weaver. My pleasure. <laughs>